Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and for this episode, we're talking about ADD and ADHD. Attention Deficit Disorder, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, probably the most misunderstood of all the disorders that affect both children and adults. We hear it called spoiled child syndrome or bad parent disorder or laziness and so on. Many people speculate on causes and treatments without any real science to prove or justify their ideas. But what does medical science say about ADD? What does research tell us? And more importantly, how can parents find out the correct information from credible sources? Well, my guest today is able to shed some light on all that. Dr. Oren Mason is a medical doctor who specializes in the treatment of ADD and ADHD. His practice is called Attention MD, based here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he joins us to talk about the causes of ADD and the treatment options that are available. And Dr. Mason, you have a very different background from most other medical doctors as far as how you decided to specialize in ADD and ADHD treatments. You actually have ADD, but it was undiagnosed for many years, and you even went all the way through medical school with untreated ADD. I think I can speak for many parents when I ask, how did you do it? Well, first off, I don't know if medical school is quite as hard as some people envision, <laughs> but... The, the, the real answer to your question is uh, coping skills. And because everybody with ADD may struggle to do things, but figures out, at least in some ways or another, the, the, the coping skills that helps us get done. Mm-hmm. And so when we, when we think of a child struggling in school, it's not that he is incapable of performing math calculations, but that because of the attention difficulties, you know, he has to work extra hard to do it, and it takes extra time. Right. And so the coping skills that mo- most often help people get along with ADD enable them to do things, but the, the thing that's important to see is that behind those coping skills, people with ADD are working harder to do the, 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 the same amount of work and so uh, are always, it seems, you know, carrying their loads uphill uh, compared to the... To, to, to the other children or the other uh, people in similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one real important coping skill is, and, and, and this one's often missed, but people with ADD can usually do a pretty good job of doing what we'd love to do. I, I, I can't tell you how many times a father has said, for example, um, you know, the teacher thinks my child has attention deficit disorder, but you should see him pay attention to his video game. So I know it's not an attention problem. I think it's a laziness problem or it doesn't like to do schoolwork problem, but it's not attention. Right. Well, technically, that, that's uh, precisely it. What, what he's really seen is uh, that the child can pay attention when it's on, a, it's on an emotional basis or has a certain ability to do things that he really finds enjoyable, but that the workhorse attention is what's failing. Right. And so one of the coping skills that uh, we see kind of behind the scenes in people with ADD is there is success in things that, that we love, that we really enjoy. And for me, medical school was super enjoyable. Hmm. I thought the, you know, the, what we got to learn about the, the body was amazing. And, and so attention wasn't as hard for me as it might have been if I'd been in accounting or law school or something that I find a bit drier. Right. So people with ADD, it's not that we don't have successes. It's that, it's, it's that we'll have uh, failures that are inexplicable in light of the successes. You know, you look for a consistency of performance, 
And in my case, it was parenting. And, 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 and I would submit, you know, I think a lot of people think that medical school must be harder than parenting because anybody can parent, but medical school is right. reserved for a few. And I would, I would suggest it's the other way around. I think uh, parenting is phenomenally difficult. And hmm. having uh, been at this for a few years, I would suggest that people should think long and hard about doing it, at least longer and harder than they do about whether they go to medical school or not. <laughs> but at any rate, I... Um, I, I, w- I was able to remember what it took to take care of patients. I was able to, you know, keep charts up to date and do that kind of work, but I wasn't able to do the day-to-day work of parenting, and it was a mystery to both my wife and and myself how, how I was capable of that in one way but not in another. Right. That's fairly typical of, of ADD stories. People with ADD will have some successes based on coping sp- skills but can't maintain that consistency. Ah. Is it a patience thing, or you know, as, uh, as far as being able to maintain a level of uh, patience or concentration, or oh, there, it, it, it's a matter of self-control. I think is the best way to express it. Um, we have to be able to deal with frustrations. We have to be able to control our attention, even when we uh, aren't particularly interested. We still have to bring uh, attention and maintain it. You know, to make educational advances, to work well as a society. There's a lot of skills that we need to employ that just aren't natural. They're not intuitive. They have to be taught. And people with ADD have a, for, forgive me, I'll, I'll use ADD and ADHD interchangeably here. Okay. Uh, the technical term is ADHD. Right. But people with AD, uh, ADD or ADHD will be able to um, do these things sometimes, but the consistency that's uh, required to do it in a, in a school situation or a job situation uh, just isn't there. And that's the thing that will mystify the teachers uh, very often when, when, when they're trying to describe a child with ADD. They'll see, you know, I see flashes of brilliance, and I know he can do it, but he's not doing it on a consistent ba- basis. And that would actually be fairly characteristic. Right. Well, that brings me to, of course, where we, uh, our next question here, you know, the misconceptions and misunderstandings when it comes to ADD and ADHD. You hear it called spoiled child syndrome or teacher annoyance disorder and so on. But uh, there is actually a medical, you know, definition and a medical diagnosis. And can you explain specifically, um, you know, what really happens with ADD and ADHD as far as the diagnosis is concerned? Certainly. They, you know, you're right. There's a, there's a lot of rumors um, that this is uh, an, a normal variant, that we've, you know, picked out some uh, behaviors that are a little troublesome to deal with and given it a diagnosis. And that's patently untrue, actually. It, it's understandable, though, because so many of the characteristics that we see in ADD are things that people who don't have ADD have themselves. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, lo- losing things misplacing things. Hmm. Adults with ADD, it, it's almost a joke in support groups, uh, often lose car keys. Ah. Well, losing car keys isn't, you know, there's very few people that haven't lost their car keys. Right. Adults with ADD may have lost them several times this week. You know, people who don't have ADD may misplace them several times a year. Ah, okay. And so it's a difference in frequency. Now, we wouldn't give somebody a medication for ADD if all it was was losing car keys. Right. And so the diagnosis of ADD rests not just on, you know, are you more forgetful than other people, but do you really have trouble managing your memory in many ways? Do you really have trouble managing your attention in many circumstances? Do you really do you have trouble 
uh, with emotional self-control across a variety of situations. And, and when we see what turns out to be a pattern of poor self-control in a lot of areas, that's the diagnosis of ADD. Ah. So, but, it, but, it, but it's hard to pin down because you can't say if you lose your car keys, you have ADD. Or if you have trouble paying attention to boring lectures, you have ADD. It's not, it's, it's not that simple. Right. But the people with ADD will struggle more than the average person with those and many other routine life circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that's where our diagnosis of ADD comes from, um, from a, a very broad difficulty in handling a lot of learned situations. Now, with the... ADD and ADHD, they both have the specific symptoms, and they both can have different effects on children and adults, and they even affect males and females differently. Uh, could you elaborate on what those symptoms are and how they would adversely affect children and adults? Sure, and I, I glossed over this before. Um, you know, ADD and ADHD are often uh, named separately, and we do that primarily for diagnostic purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a child with ADD, for example, might even be quiet and a wallflower and shy mm. and not have at all the appearance of, um, you know, I think you said before, spoiled child syndrome right. or another uh, one, one that we talk about sometimes is teacher nuisance disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some hyperactive uh, children who are up and around and bothering people and intrusive. And, you know, it doesn't take a degree in special education to diagnose these kids. The school janitor probably knows right. that uh, they're struggling. Um, but that's only one picture of ADD, and I think, as you alluded, you, you, you know, you can't just glance at a, at, at a child and go, oh, that's one with ADD. Unfortunately, you can glance at a child and say, oh, that's a very active child. Mm-hmm. But going back to the self-control issue, what we're really looking for is a pattern of poor self-control of whatever activity level you have. Mm. And so we might find very active children who have trouble settling down when they come in from recess. But over the kindergarten or the, and the first grade years, you know, they learn more and more to do that. So they're learning to control their very high energy levels. Right. And so you, you see the self-control developing, and that's not a child with a problem. But, you know, even if you have a normal activity level, but you really don't have a good self-control mechanism for it, you know, you come in from recess and you're all wound up and it's very hard to settle down. And so, and so when we do movement counts on kids with ADD, they they don't respond as well to the social expectations as the other children do. And the kids without ADHD are, are, are learning to exercise their self-control, where the kids with ADHD are still j- just struggling and don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. literally because, you know, we consider this the, to be genetic and brain-based, and literally because the control circuitry in the brain isn't available and, and, and doesn't work when they do try to self-control. Mm-hmm. And you asked, too, about the symptoms that we look for. And if hyperactivity isn't there, that doesn't dissuade us because hyperactivity is rarely a problem as an adult. Right. Now, it's, for often people, it's still, it's, it's still present. And, you know, if you look for hyperactivity in adults, you don't find it. But if you look for restlessness, you know, either a physical restlessness and fidgetiness and a desire to move and, a, and, and, and an impatience, if you will, uh, that's often still present as an adult. And there's also mental restlessness that a lot of people with ADD describe, and, and that doesn't go away as an adult either. Like uh, difficulty sleeping or difficulty getting the mind to relax? Exactly. You know, some people with ADD are very poor at uh, watching movies, relaxing, can't play games with kids, don't do well at stoplights. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll tend to drive in patterns that avoid stoplights because if you can 
a lot of people with ADD would rather run into three stop signs without the long wait that they might encounter if they came to a major intersection and had to wait three minutes. And so, wow. And so people with ADD uh, are sometimes studiously good at avoiding the longest line in the grocery store and, and can be very impatient in those settings. You know, if somebody's uh, struggling to make change or whatever ahead of them, people with ADD struggle to have the patience, even though, even though most adults with ADD are, you know, tend to be really compassionate and all, really have trouble making it happen actually in life, in the line, when, when being inconvenient. And so it's not... Again, again, I'm given a lot of examples of things, John, that are really small, you know, and all by themselves you go, you know, do you take medication so you can wait in line better? Right. And it, no, it's, uh, you know, people with ADD have a pervasive pattern of this, and, you know, there's literally hundreds of examples in every single day where self-control deficits impair your ability to drive safely, to interact well with other people, to show up for work on time. Mm-hmm. Um, to do what needs to be done that's not really compelling. Right. They have, the, do adults with ADD tend to have uh, uh, problems in the workplace and that sort of Ab- thing? Absolutely, absolutely. Just like children with ADD have trouble in school, people with ADD have trouble in any setting that we're in. Hmm. And so adults with ADD, in, you know, sitting in the driver's seat, have four times as many auto accidents. Oh. There's been... a somewhere around 200 adult outcomes uh, that have been studied for adult ADD, and we've never found an advantage. People with ADD are disadvantaged in every setting we look at. Wow. So when we look at income, people with ADD earn less. When we look at um, employment lengths, people with ADD have shorter employment lengths. When we look at unemployed time between jobs, people with ADD have longer unemployed times. When when we look at jobs per decade, people with ADD have more. When we look at... um, divorce rate, it's higher in people with ADD. When we look at depression, it's higher. Anxiety is higher. Substance abuse is higher. Suicide is higher. I mean, there's, there's a myth out there that there's some strengths to ADD, but nobody's actually uncovered that in research. What we find is that everywhere we look, adults with ADD are, are, are disadvantaged relative to the non-ADHD folks. So untreated, that's going to cause probably a lifetime of problems. Right, and thanks for saying that. It, it, it's important to point out that, you know, when we do these uh, naturalistic studies, we're, we're, we're talking about undiagnosed AD, uh, ADD or ADHD. And unfortunately, this research is relatively recent, and, you know, the thing that we'd like to be able to say is that all these problems clear up when somebody is treated. Right. And that's unfair. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that in working with people, we really work to clear up exactly these kind of problems, but we don't have the research that says, yep, if you just, you know, subscribe to this treatment that all these problems go away. There's a lot of tantalizing suggestions, but, the, you know, this is a relatively new area, and so, and, and, and so I, I would say stay tuned. We're, we're seeing nice trends, but it's, it's relatively early. Right, because the treatments for ADD and ADHD are relatively recent as well. Right. Uh, the, the, the notion of adult ADHD... Is, is, is present in a few thought leaders back in the 1980s and 1990s, but it was really the late 1990s before there was widespread ex- acceptance that, a, that an adult could have ADHD hmm. or that a child could have an inattentive form of ADD. That's also a relatively recent uh, notion. 
Well, let's uh, let's get into some of the causes. I know there's a lot of theories out there about what causes ADD, like diet problems or watching too much television. Can you comment on some of those and what the what the real scientific research is saying about it? Sure, and thanks thanks for asking it that way because um, you know on on matters this complicated, it's it's easy to ascribe things to whatever is whatever whatever is convenient, whatever our our, our beliefs are. What we've come up so far is that. Uh, is that ADHD is almost entirely genetic. So TV is not a cause. There's an association between TV watching and ADHD diagnosis, but to the best of our knowledge, it goes more like this. In the studies that were done, were done in two and three-year-olds, you know, before it's possible to diagnose ADHD. Right. So it was found that uh, two to three-year-olds who watched more TV were more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. Hmm. Now, there's two, two main ways that you could resolve that. One is to say, wow, did the TV watching cause ADD, ADHD? Mm-hmm. The other is to say, wow, do kids who are later diagnosed with ADHD either voluntarily watch TV more or are they actually set in front of TV more often by their parents because they're already starting to develop some, they, they're, they're a group that are more difficult to manage. And, uh, and, and to the best of our knowledge, it's the latter. Mm-hmm. You know, kids with ADHD at two and three even though they're not diagnosed yet, have more trouble with self-control, more trouble not being intrusive, not, more trouble not bothering mom while she's cooking dinner, right, and so forth. And so they need a fairly compelling babysitter, if you will. You can't sit them down to do something that they're not you know, going to get really engaged in. And so I think the bulk of the evidence suggests that uh, kids with ADHD when they're younger literally get put in front of the TV more just so that parents can get something done. Right. That sound that yeah, that sounds probably likely. <laughs> yeah, we, we we just haven't found a mechanism whereby T V watching can induce genetic changes. And genetic changes are what's responsible for ADD. You know, the the the, the research is putting together and it's not complete, but it's putting together a fairly compelling notion that the genetics of ADHD result in underfunction of certain uh, pathways in the brain. Hmm. There's lower levels of neurotransmitters. The neurotransmitters are handled differently. And so literally areas of the brain don't work so well. Ah. And it's areas of the brain that, that involve what's generally known as self-control. So there's an attentional center and it's uh, up in the front of the brain behind the forehead. Right. And in, in numerous studies, we find underactivity in that area of the brain. Ah. Well, the neurotransmitters that are used in that area of the brain are dopamine and norepinephrine, and, and the genes for ADHD code for the surface receptors that handle these. And a lot of the study has to be done, of course, in animals, not in little kids. But what, what we find is much lower levels of the neurotransmitters in these attentional control areas of the brain. Ah. And there's some intriguing studies in humans that look like we have the same physiology as the animals do. And so, you know, if genetically you have lower levels of neurotransmitters, it's going to take something relatively powerful in a, in a, in a treatment sense to, to affect that. But the gist of it is it's genetic, and so the notion that uh, bad parenting could cause it or, you know, bad diet could cause it is, is really going out the window as, as, as we get down to the mechanism and realize that it's, 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 it's mostly there from birth. Yeah, so it's more of a neurological issue. It's, it's, 
it's, it's neurologic, it's encoded, and, and people with ADD are born with it and are probably going to uh, die with it. And if, it, if they are one of the fortunate ones who, who does get better through childhood, they're still going to have some residual from it. It, it. it isn't completely gone. Wow. Now, can we um, then maybe get into some of the ideas about treating ADHD? There's also a lot of theories there, such as eliminating certain foods or special diets, uh, getting more exercise, and even taking vitamin or herbal supplements. And again, from a scientific and medical research perspective, are those treatments options really um, effective? Or Well, there, there's been a fair amount of work on this. And the, the, the shorter answer is, We've been pretty disappointed with with most of the uh, non-traditional treatments, um, neurofeedback, dietary supplements, actual diets, and you can't say that they have no effect. But I think you can say that it's a small effect. Ah. And a and, and, and a an, an analogy that might work for some is, you know, if you have a if you, if you have a car and it can only go 15 miles an hour, and uh, the clutch is slipping, and there's a big problem in the car, and it. Tweaking the engine, you know, adding gasoline additives and, and adjusting the timing and, and that kind of stuff are all going to help a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe, maybe if you really tune the engine up, you know, now it'll be able to go 17 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. So you can't say that, you know, that these minor treatments are ineffective. But in terms of restoring, you know, full function, there's a few cases out there, you know, case reports of, of some non-traditional treatments having a having an impressive restorative function. But, but in general, most of them, when you do good controlled studies, aren't any better than placebo. Hmm. And so that, that, that's been a tremendous disappointment because we'd like, an, we'd like a library of treatments that, that, that we could use. There's a lot of parents who aren't comfortable with the notion of medications and would love to do you know, neurofeedback and supplements. And, and I'd love to have something to offer them. But in, in good scientific consciousness, I think... I, I think looking at the evidence, you, 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 you can't encourage, I don't discourage people from looking at those alternatives, but I don't, I don't think you can pretend that they're fundamentally going to change ADHD. Right. Okay, well then let's go on and uh, talk about the uh, various drug treatment options. Many people believe giving children drugs for ADD is a bad idea, but the fact is we've got decades of, decades of medical research that disputes this notion. So could you uh, talk about what some of the drug treatment options are and what the science is behind them? Sure, no, I'd be happy to. The, um, as we said before, when you get down to the root of it, if, if lower levels of neurotransmitters are as best we can understand the heart of the problem, then the treatment needs to actually raise those neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. The only way that we've found to really do that predictably in, in the vast majority of people is uh, using medications. Right. We've got two classes of medications, and the stimulants are fairly well known, and, and the stimulants have some dangers, and I think rightly so are, are given a fair amount of respect. Mm-hmm. That said... The stimulants work a little differently in the brains of children and adults with ADHD than in the brains of people who don't have those conditions. Mm. And so a lot of the harms that we hear coming from these medications are when people who don't have ADD or ADHD are using them for purposes other than what I would use them for with my patients. Ah. You know, you can use, you, you can use Adderall as, a, as a, an eight-hour energy pill. Hmm. You know, and it's it, it's probably more, much more effective than the than a five hour energy drink that you can buy, for example. Wow. Um, well, any anybody ADHD or not c- 
can use that in college to stay up all night and, and do work that you've left till the last minute. Right. When, when we talk about that use of it, that's an illicit use and it's a big problem. When we, when we talk about using it for people with ADHD, we're not talking about waking up sleeping people. We, we give it in the morning when they're, when they're awake. What we're hoping to do is increase the efficiency of the thinking, planning, organizing parts of the brain. Mm. You know, the, the control of activity, the, the execution of uh, complex tasks. Right. Stimulants and non-stimulants both do that. But the, 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 the stimulants have as a side effect that they can uh, keep people up. Well, when we give these medications in the morning, that's not a troublesome side effect. But if we were to give these medications at, 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 at bedtime, yes, that would be troublesome. Mm-hmm. But we've developed, uh, you know, long-acting versions of the stimulants that can be given in the morning. They're highly effective with ADHD. Right. And sometimes give dramatic and relatively quick um, improvements in a lot of these executive functions, including attention. Now, we also have the non-stimulants, and that's been an interesting group. You know, the notion that we can treat ADHD around the clock is, is newer. The oh. stimulants having been around for a while, the non-stimulants all having really come to our attention uh, since about 2002. And so, you know, medications that, that are there and helpful when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, or even with the long-term planning that occurs over days, you know, maintaining uh, things in your brain for days at a time, maybe something that the non-stimulants do a little better than the stimulants. But, you know, in terms of the effect that we see with either of these medications, I have to tell you that it's huge. Some people have near-complete symptomatic remission. Wow. Meaning that for the most part, no teacher or psychologist observing them in the room would be able to differentiate that they had ADHD. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, again, when, when, when we talk about the small effects that in some individuals we see for diet and supplements and that kind of stuff, we're not talking about that kind of a, a effect. We're not talking about normalization. Right. But, but the notion that we could use the medications to, in some cases, achieve normalization is, 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 is actually a relatively new and exciting thing. That's great. Um, how about safety concerns? I know many people are obviously concerned about uh, the safety of the medications and side effects, especially. I hear a lot about that. And uh, I was just wondering uh, if you could touch about the, uh, you know, the relative safety and effectiveness of these medications. Yeah, and thanks for asking, John. I mean, that's a really important question because um, there's, there's no thing that's effective in a human uh, in, in an individual's ecosystem that doesn't have side effects. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ever hear about a, an intervention that doesn't have side effects, you know it doesn't work either. Yeah. Um, because we're very complex, and so things that do what we want in one sphere may do what we don't want in another sphere. Mm-hmm. So we have two concerns. One is side effects, and side effects can vary from, uh, you know, nuisance, nuisance uh, to, to very intrusive and side, side effects sometimes derail our use of these medications. Um, you, you know, there's children who do respond well, but they have side effects, and so it has to be discontinued. Mm. We're relatively fortunate to have, a, to have several medications to pick from, and so it's, it's, it's rare for an individual to have no drug that they can comfortably take, but it happens sometimes. So side effects are nuisance conditions. They're not so much 
they don't make us uh, concerned so much for a person's uh, health or safety. Mm-hmm. We also have adverse reactions. And, you know, I won't tell you that these medications are without adverse reactions. There's things that we have to watch for. Mm-hmm. Um, so, some people will have more increase in blood pressure or, or pulse than we're comfortable with, and we'll have to uh, take them off a specific medication and try another. Um, I, I, I occasionally, we'll have... Um, we'll, we'll have even uh, worse side effects. Uh, hallucinations and seizures are exceedingly rare, but, um, but but they happen occasionally. Right. Now, would that be uh, blood pressure related, or is that something else as far as that goes? Uh, no, those, those are separate. Oh, okay. Um, j- just an unusual reaction. Uh-huh. Um, hallucinations, you know, true hallucinations are probably one per 10,000 patients. Seizures mm-hmm. may, be, may be more rare than that. Huh. You know, there's medications, uh, one that can cause a form of uh, liver failure that's temporary, mm. but it's one per million. Oh. And, you know, these numbers are so small, it's hard to, it's hard to grasp. Right. Um, one per million is your chance of dying in 60 miles driving. Right. And so, on the one hand, we say there's safety concerns. On the other hand, to my mind, they're within the safety trade-offs that we make on a daily basis. Right. And I, and I should also say something else, too. Um, there, were, there were three studies done in the last two years because of concerns about heart attacks, uh, sudden death, and strokes. Mm-hmm. And there's been, there's, there, there's been some committee hearings and so forth at Congress. Um, parents whose uh, children died or had you know, some really serious events while taking these medications. Right. And, of course, it's very hard to tell if the medication caused those or not. Mm-hmm. And so a series of three studies were done that involved 2.5 million children, and they were looking at precisely these issues. You know, the children taking ADHD drugs, do they die at the same rate or at a higher rate? Do they have heart attacks at the same rate or a higher rate than children who aren't taking these drugs? Mm-hmm or adults who are taking these drugs in these various studies. So across 2.5 million people, the answer was no. There's no increase in heart attacks over the baseline. There's no increase in strokes. There's no increase in sudden death. There's no increase in hospitalization for cardiac arrhythmias. And the reason I'm going into some depth on something kind of boring here is that in, in all of medicine, it's very rare right. to have a medication with that clear a safety margin to, to, to not have any long-term concerns that we, that we need to watch more closely for is fairly unusual. Mm-hmm. There's almost no medication, antibiotic, cold medication, anything that parents are routinely giving their children that, that, that can meet that safety standard. And I have to underline that this is when, you know, when taken in the doctor's care. Right. Um, you know, when these are properly monitored, we find them astoundingly safe. But on an individual basis, you know, that's not to dissuade parents from, uh, you know, bringing side effects or, or, or concerns about medication to their doctor. In, in, in fact, what I just said assumes that parents are going to be very vigilant and communicating well with their doctor when they see something that might or might not be a side effect and trying to determine um, whether it's due to the medication or not. Right. And that's definitely important. I mean, even with the asthma medications that I take, there's a lot of side effects, too. Right. Right. And, and, and again, because we, we want you to breathe. Yes. <laughs> and, 
and, and, and so we're willing to accept some safety concerns and some trade-offs because we consider breathing so important. And I think you have to say the same for ADHD. We're willing to accept some concerns mm-hmm. because of all the long-term concerns that we have for people with ADHD. Right. Now, it's interesting. One of the things that I remember you talking about uh, in some of the uh, uh, consultations that we've had with you is that you like in, uh, taking the ADD medication to the same thing as uh, what a diabetic takes insulin for and the same type of uh, comparison there. Could you explain how that uh, works again? I think that's a really fascinating comparison. Well, sure. You know, the there's... There, there's some things in, 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 in medicine that we can actually fix, and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a diseased appendix can be removed, and it, it will never be diseased again. You know, the, 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 the problem is literally cured. And, um, you know, there's, there, there, there's certainly a desire in medicine to have a once-and-for-all treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and, you know, appendicitis would be a big disappointment if it meant that you had to take you know, an antibiotic twice a day for the rest of your life. Right. And so, but, but in fact, there's a lot of disorders, and diabetes is one of them, um, where the treatment needs to be taken continuously. You know, again, they're working on cures for diabetes with uh, pancreatic islet cell transplants and so forth, but our, but our treatments for diabetes right now are actually helping people with diabetes function much more like normal. Mm-hmm. And if possible, just like normal. And that's what we'd like to do with, with ADH2. What we'd like to do is give brain function so normal that the children themselves or the adults themselves with ADD are making the decisions, making the determinations, making the choices, cho- choosing to grow, trying the organizational techniques, incorporating them, adopting them. Mm-hmm. Um, if, the, if the medications aren't there, you know, a child has been taking medication for a year and has developed all kinds of improved uh, study skills and uh, social skills depends on the presence of those medications to have the brain available. Right. In the same way that a that a person with diabetes who's taking medication, you know, has a has redeveloped a good way of handling the sugar in their system. Right. Now, but they need the medication there, or they can't do it the way that they've um, that they've adopted since the medication uh, started. And so. The, the, the experience of some children is that they feel dependent on the medications. You know, if they don't take the medication, then they can't study. Um, there's, there, there's some truth to that, but that's, that, that's not what we mean when we talk about drug dependence. Mm-hmm. That's what we mean when we say, yeah, no, you need to continue the treatment to enjoy the benefits. Right, because so often I hear other parents saying, well, you know, we'll just have them on this stuff for a little while, and then eventually we won't need it anymore. But that's not necessarily the case. Right, and that's treating ADD like it's a learning disorder, like mm-hmm. the child just has failed to learn something important, and once, once they learn it, now they'll be able to continue doing it. But the ADHD goes much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a disability of those areas of the brain, and they can work when properly medicated. But all the learning, it doesn't go out the window, it doesn't disappear, but you can't display it anymore if the medication's not there. Mm-hmm. Or another analogy, John, that I, that I kind of like is... Uh, is, 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 is an amputee with a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. And so somebody with only one leg would only be able to hop or use crutches or wheelchairs, you know, wouldn't be able to walk two-legged right? like I'm able to do. But if we fit them with a prosthetic leg, they can learn to walk very similarly to how I do it. And, you know, people with prosthetic legs have actually developed uh, athletic skills far beyond my own. There's some very 
fast uh, amputee runners. Sure. Well, the if if if, if an amputee if a, if a gifted athlete uh, uh, doesn't have access to his or her leg uh, for a period of time, they don't stop being a gifted athlete. But they can't show us. They can't demonstrate it to us. As soon as the leg is back, they can show us, and they retain all that capability. And it's the same for kids with ADD. They can learn a lot of study skills and a lot of social skills, but one day without medicine, and they can't display them. Right. Dr. Mason, what would you say to a parent who might be listening to this podcast because they either suspect their child has ADD or ADHD or they actually have a diagnosis, and they're just now trying to figure out what they're going to do and uh, where they should go? Uh, what kind of advice would you give a parent like that? Well, I want to start by saying that, you know, I hear so many times in my practice, you know, parents who've tried uh, diet and neurofeedback and supplements and uh, learning centers and so forth. You know, parents are working very, very hard to try to do the right thing for their kids. And most often when they find out how effective the medications are, uh, the, the, the thing I hear over and over again is, oh, I wish we'd have done this so long ago. And I think that lament makes a little bit of sense. You know, if your child is really struggling against a fundamental problem in how his or her brain works, I think you want to start with our best medicine. You know, not that it isn't fair to push and prod and make sure that you need to go this route, but I wouldn't spend a long time doing it. Mm-hmm. If, uh, you know, changing parenting styles and, and teaching styles and medication and exercise and so forth are going to work, they're going to work fairly profoundly and, 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 and noticeably. And if, and, and, and if they're not really helping a child to make advances and catch up with classmates, then, then I think, you know, the medical management is... You know, as I said, we'd like to have a lot more treatments available, but but so far this is the best, and uh, for almost everybody uh, with ADHD. And so I would I would urge parents to at least consider beginning early in the treatment search uh, with a, with a look at the medications and how they specifically affect your child. Now, there's also been a lot said about you know the the quick diet, the 15 minute ADHD diagnosis, and um, I think. You know, parents need to be encouraged to go to a place that specializes in ADHD. And there's, there, there's some pediatricians who are very gifted at this. There's some family doctors who uh, have studied this quite a bit, and, but not all have. And so, um, you know, if you're, if, if you're not running into the kind of expertise that helps you feel better and that you're doing the right thing for your child, I think you keep moving and keep pushing and don't delay. Now, you've, uh, you've written a book, too, about your uh, journey with ADD, which you call Reaching for a New Potential. And you have a lot of really good information in there about the effects of ADHD and uh, different kinds of treatments that uh, are available. How can our listeners find your book? Uh, well, well, thanks for the uh, letting me do this uh, shameless self-promotion. Sure, no problem. That's what we're all about. <laughs> um, yeah, Re- Reaching for a New Potential was the book that I wished I had been able to read when I was diagnosed with ADHD. Rather than offering options, it just says, you know, begin with the most effective treatment. It's available at the iTunes uh, bookstore. It's available at uh, Amazon.com. You can go to my website, and there's some links uh, to those. The website is attentionmd.com. And if you're in the Grand Rapids area, you can stop by my office. Ah, And uh, we we, we have copies. So many ways to do that. But, you know, again, the gist of the book is, you know, begin with the most effective treatment, but then don't stop. Once you started the meds, now layer on, you know, diet and exercise and sleep and 
see if you're one of the people that gets a noticeable bump from those. Not everybody does, but what if you get a what if you get some improvement? Well, those are all easier to do once you're medicated. Right. So it just it just kind of lays out the priorities in the way that I wish somebody had uh, encouraged me when I was first diagnosed. Yeah, and I'll have to say I've read your book and I think it's tremendous. And so we got to I want to plug it again one more time. Is Reaching for a New Potential by Dr. Oren Mason and available on Amazon and uh, iTunes bookstore and several other places, including your website. And, of course, your practice is called Attention MD. It's based here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Many of our listeners might not be in Michigan. Uh, is there a website that you can recommend that people could go to to find out more information about ADD, ADHD, and possibly find medical help in their own communities? There, there, there certainly is, and probably the best one-stop shop on the web is the CHAD website. CHAD stands for Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and it's at chadd.org. There, there's a link, there's several uh, helpful links on that site. One is to the National Resource Center on ADHD, which is a clearinghouse for research. And, you know, in a world where there's a lot of recommendations, it's nice to be able to go to a, uh, uh, a, a place, and it's actually a function of the National Library of Medicine, ah. where, where scientific information on ADHD is gathered and put into, you know, understandable terms so that you don't feel like you're looking in a medical science library for what you need to know. And there's also um, local CHAD chapters and uh, a referral source for physicians and therapists with ADHD, as, as, as well as a lot of helpful information about the disorder and what can be done at the various ages. So chad.org, C-H-A-D-D.org website. Great. Do they have a directory on there of uh, maybe medical practices that specialize, such as yours? They, they do, and it's incomplete, oh, um, okay. but they do. Um, it's always it's it's always uh, good though to ask parents of children with ADHD, adults with ADHD, um, who they recommend because I think there's there there's something to personal recommendation that you just don't get from a from an online database, and so you know trying to find the people locally who who might have been down the same path that you have and right. and can tell you their own experience with individuals is also a good place to start. Right, that's great, and I I, I can speak for. Uh, definite endorsement that uh, you meet all kinds of parents who have kids with ADHD or are getting it treated themselves, and so there's uh, lots of resources out there if you just kind of ask around and see what's going on. I would highly encourage that. Well, great. Well, we're going to put links to uh, everything we talked about, your book and your website and the Chad website up on the page when we uh, post this broadcast, so um, hopefully everyone will be able to, if nothing else, find it there and then go where they need to go. That'd be great. You know, and best uh, best luck to all your listeners in their journeys. I know that the parents of children with ADHD in general are working twice as hard for half the results, and it's it, it, it's a group that I love to work with and encourage and be inspired by. So. Well, thanks for talking with us, Dr. Mason. With so much misinformation out there in ADD and ADHD, it's good to have some credible scientific information so that people can make good choices. It's my privilege. Thank you so much, John. Again, our guest was Dr. Oren Mason, who specializes in treating attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactive disorder through his practice, Attention MD, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And as we mentioned, we have links on this episode's webpage to all the websites that were talked about in this podcast. This has been Episode 4 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.